Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, the Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today I am talking to Dr. Alan York, a U.S. Army veteran and an adjunct instructor for Southern New Hampshire University and other institutions. Today we're going to discuss Alan's academic and professional background, recent developments in military history, and how his military experience has contributed to his current academic career. What is your name and what do you do? My name is uh, Alan York. I am an adjunct instructor in the history department with Southern New Hampshire University, as well as a few other universities I teach with. I'm uh, originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and currently live in Myrtle Beach. Excellent. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your academic and your professional background? Yes, um, I actually had a a pretty uh, unorthodox, uh, I guess, untraditional um, pathway into academia. Um, I, when I graduated high school, I, I was accepted into the colleges that I applied to. Um, But I came from real blue collar family. Uh, Neither of my parents had had gone into college right out of high school. And uh, and I I think a lot of it was just really unfamiliarity to me. may as well have been talking about colonizing Mars for me about a college campus. Uh, I didn't grow <laughs> up with, you know, the expectations of it or stories about it or anything. Um, so I really had no idea you know, what I would do. Um, but what I did know more was military service. Uh, that's what my, my father, all my uncles, you know, all the stories I'd heard from them. So so I enlisted into the, the Army um, with the intent that I would spend my few years and um, figure things out, grow up a little bit and uh, take all the, the GI Bill and college benefits and, and put myself through school then. Instead, I wound up taking to that lifestyle very well, um, really thrived in it, enjoyed it. And uh, somewhere right around, um, it would have been 2001, I was in for, I guess, about six years. And uh, the Army came out with this great program called E-Army-U. Um, and, and what it was, was uh, if you signed up for this program, they gave you a free laptop, a free dial-up internet account, uh, a free printer, um, and $4,500 a year in tuition assistance for you to, to use to start advancing your education. Hmm. Uh, so I started out that way and uh, taking courses online at a time where, um, you know, online education wasn't, wasn't new in 2001, but it was uh, definitely, at least to the best of my knowledge, in its, in its real infancy at that point. Yeah as well as taking a few classes in the evenings in the uh, education center on the installation there. Uh, and I found that I, I just really took to it. I, I loved learning. I loved every course I took in every subject. Uh, I loved just expanding my horizons and I, I plugged away at it. Um, and of course, having a full-time job in the active military, uh, things moved a little slower than they would as a, for a full-time student. But, uh, sure. You know, I completed an associate's degree and then a, a bachelor's in, um, in social science through Thomas Edison University. And then I went on to pursue a master's in military history. And at about four years before my retirement, right about where I'd finished that master's degree, I got the opportunity to, um, to serve as, as a visiting professor, basically teaching in the ROTC department and teaching military history courses at the University of Tennessee. Oh, great. When I got on campus there and, and found out uh, I had a full staff exemption, I, well, I'm going to be here on campus for three years. I'm going to do something else. And uh, I applied to the Ph.D. program, um, not really thinking I would be accepted. I, I figured I would, as a consolation, do a second master's or something. Um, you know, I didn't have that background of working as an RA and a TA, um, that, that pedigree that typically you know, uh, when a lot of students are, are going into Ph.D. programs that they, they have to compete 
but I guess the one good thing I did have was funding. Yeah. And, and I was able to get into the classroom with the professors there as a, an undeclared graduate student for a semester. And by the time they, they met for the committee of who they were going to accept, I, I, I was a, a known entity. So I, I got that opportunity and, and three years on campus, I, I completed all the coursework and passed my comprehensive exams and then spent the next four years researching and writing uh, and was able to you know, pretty much all facilitated through my service in the military to complete a PhD. That's not a bad deal. No, yeah, it's pretty great. I'm not a dime of yeah. student loan debt. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> oh yeah, boy, making me question my life choices here. <laughs> So what was your uh, research focus in grad school? Uh, I focused on the um, the Pittsburgh home front during the Civil War, actually. Um, yeah. I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, and, uh, and I was one of those candidates that um, maybe because I wasn't expecting ever to get to the Ph.D. level, that uh, I didn't really have that 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 thing that I was really wedded to from my master's studies. Uh, you know, I knew this is what I was going to study when I came in. I, that was something I really struggled with. Yeah. Uh, and, and all of a sudden I, I just became kind of keyed into that. I'll say, I knew I wanted to do something in military history. I'm, I'm uh, very passionate about new military history, about the way that you know, we really, we can use the experience of wartime as a lens to really deeply understand a lot of important things about society. Um, you know, it, it, it intersects with, and, um, is just embedded in, in every other aspect. Uh, nothing happens in a vacuum in, in time of war. When I talk to students, uh, when I teach this in the classroom, uh, time and time again throughout American history, we see these these instances of where how we define what a citizen is, political participation, validation of citizenship uh, is constantly expanded through service and time of war. So I, I became uh, keyed into this incredible story of, of Pittsburgh, the home front of Pittsburgh in the Civil War. Uh, we know that the military campaigns never made it that far west. Um, right. But Pittsburgh was this junction city uh, of railways, of the confluence of rivers, right there on the border between the eastern and western theaters. And as it turned out, soldiers are, are just constantly passing back and forth through the city, whether they're on furlough, whether it's mobilization, regiments from the Western Theater moving to the Army of the Potomac, vice versa. Uh, and the city is just drawn into this wartime experience in these myriad diverse ways that, that just made for this fascinating story. And this is interesting because military history, you know, the traditional conception of it is and I think the way most people outside of actually studying military history kind of envision it is that, you know, it's the history of troop movements, the generals employing these tactics and these strategies and all of that. But your work really, it sounds like it is really kind of emblematic of this new version of military history that's been developing over the last few, couple of decades where the it's really been expanded and the conception of military is being expanded in a way that in some ways, I mean, at first it kind of sounds like civilian studies rather than military studies. But, you know, like you're saying, you're talking about how the military, military people are interacting with civilians, how military life is intersecting with civilian life. It's actually a much more complicated vision of the field than it is just the, you know, movement of unit A over to over there and unit B over there, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, know, you and I know that the, the field went through, uh, we're, we're kind of coming full circle now, um, but where we know around the, through the 80s, we 
military history really kind of underwent this phase of where the field had to explain itself to broader academia. You mm-hmm. know, why, did, why does this matter beyond the military practitioner? Um, you know, which regiment flanked who at what point, what junction in the battle? Right. Uh, so as you said, you know, over the past few decades, we really have been expanding, really broadening the, the field to demonstrate just how integral it is to, to understanding our society or the, the story of our society's past. And so many remarkable historians have done great work in this uh, of where they've used uh, military history to expand study uh, studies of women's history as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, studies of other minority groups, uh, studies in labor, um, you know, again, all of which intersect and, and see these really tremendous um, sort of paradigm shifts that happen through the experience of war. Mm-hmm. It's really well. Actually, I'll let you kind of continue on with that because what were your what, what were your general conclusions from all of this uh, research that you did on this topic? Was what what were what, how would you characterize the relationship between the military and the civilian in Pittsburgh in those days? Well, what I found was, you know, instead of just sort of being observers of the war. Uh, these people on the home front just in so many different ways became active participants. You know, they, they experienced the war. They shaped the, the course of events throughout the war. Um, and, and some of those, those are, there are more familiar ways, for example, uh, soldier aid societies. Um, but when I looked on a local level, I was really able to see kind of the conflict between these large you know, national soldier aid societies that we're familiar with, the, the the Christian Commission or the Sanitary Commission, um, but but there's a strong feeling of localism of of people on the home front wanting to specifically support their soldiers that they're sending to the front. So there are all these little local agencies that develop in response to that impulse, um, as well as to deal with to, to treat to care for soldiers that are that are passing through the city. Um, I include that there's a, just an interesting kind of moment that that helps jumpstart all this effort in Pittsburgh where a a regiment passes through the city by rail and when they get to the next town over um, whether they actually sort of uh, make these disparaging remarks or whether this is just what the newspaper in the next town over reports but there are these accounts from soldiers of how poorly they were treated and there's their brief little layover in Pittsburgh Mm. and and the response in the city is just such indignation, you know, that we're not going to be outdone in our support of the union war effort. You know, we're not going to be seen as the city that, that doesn't support the troops. And it, it kicks off this, just this incredible, um, you know, mobilization of, of benevolent work within the city. Uh, there's other great little stories like, um, the Ellet Ram fleet, uh, where the engineer Charles Ellet comes up with the brilliant idea that, you know, now that we have steam power and ships, we can revisit this ancient tactic of ram ships hmm. uh, that can actually under fire now ram into enemy ships to disable them. And the Naval Department bites on this and they send him to Pittsburgh to build this whole fleet of ironclad riverboats that are going to serve as, as ram ships. Hmm. But the, the, the individuals that become engaged in this are ordinary riverboat engineers. They're draymen that load the ships. They're, they're people that work as part of the crew for these riverboats. And it becomes one of the last instances of, of having civilians serve in combat when they go to Memphis and fight the small Connecticut, uh, Confederate fleet there um, of just ordinary civilians now who are, who are engaged in this, this aspect of the war. Um, 
so what I, that really, I, I guess, you know, is the, the large finding from all of it is just, uh, you know, just how much they, they became active participants in the war rather than just passive observers of it. Yeah, that's really interesting because it sounds like this is a fusion of, you know, technological history, scientific history, but also cultural history and social history. You're, you're, you're really touching on a lot of different fields there, even if your overall thinking here is or your overall kind of um, identification is with military history. But this is sounds like quite an expansive project. That's impressive. Thank you. And so how do you think your background in the military contributed to your, you know, your success as a historian? Oh, well, um, I, I'd say one aspect, uh, it's a kind of an inherent appreciation of, of history. Mm-hmm. Um, you, as you come up as a career uh, military person, um, culture and heritage and tradition is something that's just embedded into every unit. Uh, there's a, a, a very good, um, if not systematic, then, then just cultural, um, I'd say program of, of really inculcating in, in everyone that serves in uniform and appreciation of the past. Uh, so while I, I, I had that early on in life, uh, you know, my dad took me on, on, uh, trips to Gettysburg for weekends and, and, uh, and, and from that moment on, I love the story of the civil war. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I read Bruce Catton at the age of nine. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, but is, but that was just really, really fostered through that experience of serving in the military. Mm -hmm. And do you see any connection between, uh, the skills that you learn in the military and, and the skills you learn as a historian? Are there any kind of correlations there or analogies? Absolutely. Uh, another one of the things that I always try to, um, I know every, every course that I, I teach in the classroom for history, um, when I'm able to, to develop the curriculum for that, I, I open up the very first lecture is always why study history. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm a big relevance type of person. Um, and, and unfortunately, our field is one where we really have to make that case nowadays right. uh, is as undervalued as it's becoming more and more, uh, not just in academia, but in, in society at large, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I try, I make that case to the students and, and there are, uh, Peter Stearns, uh, had an, an incredible article on this that, that really serves as kind of the, the framework, um, for it. But, uh, all these different ways where, where we, we see the value to society of, of being aware of our past. Um, but, but practically as well for the workforce, uh, you know, we, we take a question, we, uh, objectively analyze evidence, um, come to a conclusion and develop a, a, you know, coherent argument to support that. Um, that's no different than what someone will do in sales or that you have to do in the medical field and determining a course of treatment, uh, or, or anything else. So those skills are very universal in the military, uh, especially as a senior leader, you're solving all kinds of problems all the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you really have to have that I guess that, that trait of objectivity and that trait of, of wanting to base the decisions that you make that are, that are often life and death off of having evidence in front of you uh, to be able to know that you're choosing that best course of action. Um, so I, I think it very, very clearly translated in into the field of history as we're, we're weighing the credibility of different pieces of evidence, as we're making decisions about what kind of conclusions we're going to come to as, as far as uh, uh, 
you know, especially when we deal on the level of, of inference and, and so many things in the past, um, when we deal in the, the stories of common everyday people where, you know, we don't have those great jewels of diaries like we do for, for wealthy individuals that where we get into their minds and we have to really, really have to, um, you know, kind of come to those conclusions through a lot of, of weighing one piece of evidence against another. Uh, I, I think it's extremely transferable skill into every walk of life. Yeah, I hear from students who are either active military or veterans, similar, similar stories that as throughout their careers in the military, they are really, you know, I don't want to say bombarded, but the, it, the, the history of the unit and the history of the country, the history of the people that they're, you know, fighting alongside or, or training alongside, uh, that is really embedded in people throughout their careers. And so in some ways, in some ways, military students are easier, are, are, are easier to teach, uh, one, because they already know a lot of stuff. And two, I, I wonder if, and you may be able to speak to this better than I can, but being in the military instills a, a bit of kind of rigor and discipline and prioritization that uh, may, may, that, you know, people outside of the military necessarily don't, it's not that they don't have that. It's just, they're not trained in it from right. the very beginning. Like some of the, like folks in the military are. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I think one of the things that makes transition from military life into civilian life difficult for a lot of people and, and my career, my education and my career choice allowed me to completely, I mean, in many ways bypass that is, um, you become so conditioned to um, to having a, a large level of, of trust placed in you to accomplish the tasks that you're responsible for. Mm-hmm. Uh, the military cannot function well. No unit can function well when micromanagement is is required or or practiced. Mm-hmm. People have to know their lane. They have to uh, know that their 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 superior has trust in their ability to accomplish that. Because otherwise, people with too much to be concerned of get just bogged down in minutia, um, and and they miss the big picture. Uh, well, you know, likewise, you and I both know, um, and most of the people that will listen to this podcast, of course, that edu- higher education, that being successful in college, is is so dependent upon your ability to be task driven, to be. Um, discipline to be able to, to function on your own, um, to not have someone over your shoulder. And, and I think distance education even more so. Mm-hmm. For sure. It requires, online particularly requires a lot of self-discipline, um, even more than I think the face-to-face, just because the face-to-face, you, you're seeing people all the time, but when you're online, you're you're the only one. There's nobody else you can right. fall back on. You can your, your instructors might be able to help you out a bit. They might send out reminders or something, but yeah, you have to motivate yourself to really get going. Absolutely. Yep. And so with your military background, I imagine that the, the, the transition to grad school, I mean, you did it through a military institution. So what was grad school like in a military institution versus your experience working in non-military institutions? Uh, let's, well, I, I did my master's degree um, through uh, American Military University, um, which is a you know, division of American public university system. So it, mm-hmm. it was, a, I mean, an accredited civilian, you know, institution, of course, but, but still, you know, almost entirely you know, online. So when I was, I first set foot in the classroom in Tennessee into the, the, the very, you know, small 
graduate reading and research seminars there with with all the, the the PhD candidates. You know, there was the figuring out the, I guess you know the dynamics of of being a, a part of that kind of group because uh, you know as we know, I mean, graduate students do a lot of performance. You know, even mm-hmm. in online you know courses, I mean, when discussion boards, you see, you know, it's a lot of performing. It's a lot of um, uh, they do, I mean, incredible work, but a lot of it is it's showcasing, you know, I mean, just how well they've they've mastered what the subject is that we're working on. And, and I can remember a, um, a moment in my very first semester, uh, not very far into it, probably just uh, maybe, I don't know, a couple of weeks. And and one of my professors there, it was the course was teaching world history. It was a pedagogical course. And I remember the professor calling me into her her office and uh, and there, there were two points that she wanted to share with me. One of those was was she said, uh, I think at best if you I hadn't done this yet, but she said, I think at best if you don't come to class at all in uniform, mm. uh, because I was I was teaching as an ROTC professor you know, on, and largely going back and forth on the campus between my duties of that and, and being a student. And, and she had good intentions behind it. It was, you know, I, I think that a lot of the students may hold back, whether that be out of reverence or whether that be out of, uh, I don't know, whatever may have been motivating them, but that it might, it might sort of distort the experience of the interaction that we would have in the seminars. Hmm. Okay. But the other thing that she said to me that, that stuck with me much more was, it was when she told me, she said, so I think you can breathe easy. Okay. You can do this. You belong here. And it was kind of funny because on the one hand, I thought to myself, well, I didn't know that that was in question, really. <laughs> <laughs> right. What should I know? <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I, I understood what she was saying. It was, um, you know, look, I know that you didn't come from that traditional walk, that traditional background where you you went right from your undergrad right into a master's program. You were you were serving as a TA. You were grading papers. You were leading discussion groups for for your professor, you know, you were, you were working in research projects. Um, you know, all the things that you, that are, that are important part of that development that, that you typically get exposed to in a master's program, a traditional one, you know, I didn't have. Mm-hmm. So, so it was, it was that moment, you know, kind of a validation that, um, that, Hey, you may not have had that, that traditional credentialed kind of background to it, but your ability, your drive, your desire to do this, um, tells me, you know, that you're going to be successful at it. And so you were kind of joking a second ago about whether that was in question or not, but had you actually felt some sort of a disconnect before she had had that conversation with you? Had, had you actually been feeling that way? Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I guess I just, I, you know, I didn't know how much it was showing, you know, but, um, right. but yeah, I think definitely. Yeah. I mean, there was that self-consciousness, you know, that I, I knew everyone that I was with pretty much, you know, it had, most everyone had an article published or two, you know, again, most all of them had that, that those experiences of, of working closely as a graduate student with very accomplished faculty members. You know, I, I, I didn't have that content wise. I, I was good. Um, you know, the, the online program that I had taken, uh, that I had gone through was, was excellent. And, uh, I read all the same books. Um, I'd had discussions on all the same big questions about history but I just, I didn't have that immersion kind of into the environment of the field the way that everyone else had had. But I think it was, it, it's a good example that, you know, that hard work, that perseverance, that drive is always going to win out over necessarily even, you know, ability or, or background or you know, anything like that, that if an individual really wants to accomplish something, they're going to find a way to do it. 
Yeah. And it's good to hear that you kind of admitted that you felt that way. Cause I think that, I mean, there is such a thing as imposter syndrome that is kind of a well-known phenomenon among grad students is that none of us really feel like we belong there <laughs> because, <laughs> because I mean, the nature of grad school is that it always attracts very, very smart people. And so when, and I experienced this and it sounds like you experienced, I mean, this is something that I think everybody experiences and I don't want to get into quantifications about whether, you know, military folks feel it more than others. I have no idea, but it's kind of a common feeling uh, in grad school that I'm surrounded by some very smart people and they seem to have their, their life together <laughs> better than me. <laughs> and I, cause I, I went through a major imposter syndrome kind of sense throughout much of my grad school career thinking like, I, I, I don't compare to these people. I mean, I, I did fine. My GPA was fine. I, you know, I did my MA thesis, my dissertation, no problems. The instructors said they were great and all that, but still there's always this sense that there's much smarter people right. here who deserve this more than I do. And that's a hard thing to move past. It's something that can kind of consume you because when you're in seminars, there's always the people that talk more than others. I was always a very quiet student. I'm, I'm always very introverted, but there were people that would just talk uh, and they, and they would know it. They at least made it sound like they knew what they were talking about, right. yeah. which, which made <laughs> me wonder, wow, these guys, these guys have their shit together. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't, <laughs> oh my goodness. What does this mean? But you know, the reality of is, is that, you know, some people just talk more and then, yeah. I don't know. I'm not really sure where I'm going with that, but it seems to be kind of a common trait in grad school. And I don't know if it's if it's unique to historians or not. Probably not. But it's just, I think it's a kind of a rite of passage that grad school requires for people. And, and I think another interesting thing to it is, you know, as as we get so much more diversity in graduate programs, um, you know, it's funny because uh, probably my my best friend going through the, uh, the program with me. I think I was a semester behind him. Uh, I think he wound up, we wound up defending together at the same time. Um, and, and I think he wound up actually being hooded a, a semester before me. We were always kind of pacing each other, you know, where we were on it, mm. uh, you know, and uh, now we're both in, in uh, publication proposals at the same time. And it's kind of like, okay, who's going to, who's going to be first here. But mm -hmm. we, we could not have had more different backgrounds. Uh, you know, he was, he was single. Um, he was a, uh, he was a full-time, um, teaching assistant. Um, you know, all he funded, uh, all he did, you know, was his PhD program. Um, whereas mm -hmm. I was married, uh, I had three children when I was, I was going through the coursework for my PhD. Um, oh, wow. I, you know, I had a full-time job as the, the number two person in a, a department in a military unit that was responsible for commissioning new officers. Um, you know, I had a lot on my plate. I, I had a lot of plates, you know I mean? I was spinning in the air there. And, uh, right. and all the time, you know, he would, he would kind of look to me as, as, uh, you know, I made him feel kind of this, this sense of inadequacy, like, uh, mm. geez, I can't believe you've got all this done. And, um, you know, I don't have any of that stuff that I'm trying to do and, you know, where I'm at. Um, but, right. but at the same time, you know, I would always kind of have that exact same feeling towards him because while I was just barely keeping up with the coursework, um, you know, doing everything I could to maintain an A in every course, you know, I wasn't able to do anything above and beyond. There was no, I wasn't going to conferences and presenting papers. Um, I wasn't, uh, you know, submitting articles for publication. I, I was writing the papers that I had to for the grade in class. 
Uh, you know, meanwhile, he was starting to accumulate those things. So it's kind of like while we both were very, very different, we were always looking at each other as, gosh, you know, I got to be, I got to get more like you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I imagine that that goes on a lot now with the diversity and graduate programs. And that always is, is a concern for kind of the profession, because if that continues, then, I mean, the university is, universities and academia and the, the profession of history is, is consciously trying to expand their inclusivity to people that have been previously been marginalized. And if, if that sense of the imposter syndrome is allowed to kind of continue, then that could in many ways threaten all of those efforts to try to generate more inclusivity. And I think that can be very dangerous for the future of, of departments that are things like history or fields like history, because like you said earlier, one of the things we have to do is convince people that history matters. And as the general public gets more diverse, historians have to get more diverse in their explanations for why history matters. You can't just appeal to, you know, white people's sense of the glory of the Civil War or something like right. that. You have to expand and talk about the different aspects of the Civil War that appeal to different people. And so allowing some stuff like imposter syndrome to continue is going to be detrimental to that to that endeavor, I would imagine. Yeah. And, and I think another important aspect to it is, is the role of the professor, of course. Um, you know, just like I, I told the story of mine there and, and we can kind of joke about it. And while there was kind of this condescending air to it, at the same time, you know, she was encouraging me. Yeah. She was letting me know, hey, look, you know, I know the deal, you know the deal here, but um, look, it's okay. You know, you're you're obviously extremely capable, and and what she really did, kind of behind the scenes, is is she valued the right things in me. You know, she didn't say, you know, okay, you're not, you know, you're not one of us. You're not, um, you didn't walk the walk everyone else did. Um, but but what she recognized is, you know, you, you have the the inquisitiveness that will make you a great historian. Um, you know, you have the, uh, the imagination, you know, to, to look at things through very different perspectives and, and just, and fostered that in me rather than, than making me feel like, okay, you know, this isn't the right environment for you. I think you, you peaked at a master's degree now. Um, mm -hmm. you know, why don't you just, you know, go off and find something, um, that will suit you at your, your capabilities. Uh, and, and I think it's important that we do that with that diversity is, is recognize the right attributes, you know, encourage that there are there are especially today now a lot of different avenues to achieve the same goal. Yes, agreed. Good points. So we I think we can probably let grad school <laughs> lie yeah. in the past now. We can we can move on. <laughs> oh, the memories. Yeah. <laughs> So you said that uh, that these days you are mostly teaching for SNHU and other universities as, as, as an adjunct instructor. So what is your what what's your current life like as a historian? Uh, it's pretty fantastic, I think. Um, and, and again, this is where uh, you know if I didn't emulate the or, or mimic the um, the traditional walk getting to it, uh, I'm, I'm not really living out that uh, the holy grail that everyone aspires to of of you know chasing that tenure track uh, position. Um, because I, I happen to enjoy being an adjunct. Um, I, I enjoy teaching online. Uh, you know, part of that, I have a, I have an advantage that many don't because, because of retiring from the military, of course, you know, I'm, right. uh, you know, I'm not concerned about, you know, just to speak pragmatically here, you know, to the people that are, that are of course aspiring to enter the field. Um, I, I don't have to concern myself about benefits and, you know, things of that nature. Um, right. But, uh, 
but what I love about it is, uh, you know, I, I, I teach online for, uh, for Georgia Military College that has a, a growing online program reaching more people, Southern New Hampshire University um, and Liberty University, which are two of the, the, the most ex- expansive online uh, campuses that we have in the country now, uh, 90,000 students and 100,000 students. Um, and, and what I love about that is, is I'm, I'm, I have the opportunity to pass on the opportunities that, that I, I had myself. Um, I'm able to, to help reach those students who, who again, didn't have that, either they didn't have the chance to take that kind of that traditional pathway in their education or, um, or, or just maybe, uh, strayed a little bit or whatever. And now we're, now we're going through a, a decision point in life where they want to go in a different direction. They want to try something new. Um, and, much like, you know, I, I love the history of the GI Bill because after World War II, of course, you know, any American historian knows of how, how that transformed the social landscape of America by enabling an entirely new demographic to achieve higher education. Um, mm-hmm. And our country became so much richer for that. And, and I feel like in many ways we're in, a, we're in another chapter of that. Uh, with with all the the expansion of online education, because we are we are able to to reach so many of those that that really are the best and brightest, uh, that, mm-hmm. that really are I mean very exceptional people, but just through one decision or another or or whatever it may have been, you know, did didn't get onto that track, and and now we're able to get them back onto it. Um, I I you know love the flexibility of it. Uh, you know, I, I do teach here and there a section or two in my local community college just to, because I love to get into the classroom. Um, but, uh, but I would say I, I really am passionate about the, uh, the role of an adjunct for, for online programs. Yeah, that's great. And I agree that that's the thing that I like most about online education also is just the ability to reach people that otherwise would not be reachable. Um, because while, you know, not everyone is suited to a college education and, you know, there's a big debate going on about, you know, should we be emphasizing trade schools in high schools and all of that? I think for a sizable portion of the population, college is a realistic and desirable, uh, you know, endeavor. And so the, but in earlier generations, there were just all those logistical problems with a lot of people getting to traditional universities, whether it's age, I mean, that there is, I mean, age was a huge issue to overcome in the old days, because, you know, if you're surrounded by 22 year olds or 20 year olds, and you're in your 30s or 40s, you're going to feel like an outcast. And so there's, there's just all kinds of roadblocks that were in the way in the past, which are slowly coming down, hopefully coming down even faster now, but coming down because of online education, I think that's one of the more exciting aspects of online education also. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so what comes next? You said that you're preparing a, uh, a book for publication? Um, I am uh, finishing the proposal for my dissertation. Um, so hopefully that'll, that'll progress in the, uh, the coming months. Um, we'll see how it goes. Uh, I haven't, I'm pretty close to sending it off. Um, hopefully next year that'll be a development for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think after that, you know, I, I know that I want to continue in the, um, the, the new military history spectrum. Uh, I have ideas about, uh, you know, I think we have a gap in the historiography in terms of the experience of veterans of the Civil War. You know, when we, we look at the, the, the tremendous 
percentage of the population that, that was touched by serving in that war or by having a, a family member serve in the war, we don't really have a, a lot of studies really that, that look at okay, what, you know, what did that look like after the war then? We have tremendous scholarship on, on big issues of, of, of course, through reconstruction, of, of pursuing um, racial equality, of, uh, of urbanization, of labor relations, of, but, uh, but we, what we don't really have a lot of is, is what was the experience of those veterans and, and how did those veterans impact their communities when they came home? So I have a lot of, of ideas of uh, starting to put together a lot of research in that direction. Yeah, that that does seem like an interesting hole in the uh, historiography. I mean, I can think of, you know, David Blight's Race and Reunion, but even that is kind of a meta discussion of Reconstruction. It doesn't really focus, it talks about, you know, the memory of the Civil War among veterans, but yeah, it doesn't really focus on what the actual lives of veterans were like. And admittedly, that's not the book's goal, but yeah, beyond that, yeah, you're right. I can't really think of a whole lot that has to do with that either. So, right, good. (laughs) I, I look forward to seeing your work on that. And, uh, you know, once you get the, uh, the dissertation published, hopefully you can come back and maybe we can, uh, you know, talk about the book, uh, once that's up and going. Yeah, absolutely. Well, all right. Well, great. Well, let's move on to our, uh, recommendations. Uh, what do you have, uh, that you think people would be interested in hearing about? I, I think it's just, uh, and we touched on this throughout our conversation, but, um, I think it's just, uh, really coming back to embracing just how important, the, the study of, of American history is, of, of history in general, um, but, but I'll speak specifically to American history. We, we've come from a time where that was the, the kind of the essential core class that higher education was built around, and, and understanding has, as technology has advanced, as, as STEM has become so important, that, that is obviously atrophied to a degree, but I think we can see real tangible negative impacts of that. One of the things that uh, that Peter Stearns talks about in his article that's so so essential from the study of the past is is that that shared identity that evolves from that, <clears throat> and and not not in the sense of the you know the propaganda of the um, or or that the that you know, the United States is infallible and and uh, American exceptionalism per se, but but even through the story of our of our contradictions and our strivings to you know still be that city on a hill. Uh, you know that story unites us, and and as we are losing the general population is losing knowledge of and losing awareness of that because it's it's being reduced how much it's being taught in public schools it's being reduced how much it's being taught on college campuses that erodes that shared identity, and and when we look at the nature of of political discourse in our country right now the the extreme polarization we have the the inability of many from the the kitchen table to the halls of congress to be able to embrace the the position of another side i don't think it's a stretch for us to draw a direct line between that polarization and that collapse and that shared identity that we gain from learning our past so for those that are you know, majoring in the field uh uh, for for any of the doom and gloom of the you know prospects of the field or anything one may hear, um, it's incredibly important that we continue to to fill the the field with with qualified, passionate people that will continue to to preserve and spread that story of our past. Here, here. All right. Well, my recommendation is actually is a p- publication of the American Historicalization Association. Also, it's a document uh, which is you know fittingly titled for us here: Careers for History Majors. It's a it's a, it's a document that they 
that the AHA has been publishing for a while, but they, they issued the most recent update of it in uh, 2018. And this is just a, a really good starting point for students who earn history degrees and are trying to figure out what to do with their lives now. One of the purposes of this entire podcast series is to help students to get a sense of what opportunities are available to students with either undergraduate or graduate uh, history degrees. Uh, but this book, pamphlet, whatever you want to call it, it's only 30-something pages long, I think, um, but is all about basically starting your search. What does it mean to be a historian? When you are a historian, what skills do you know? What skills did you learn? Because while you're in your degree programs, we oftentimes get wrapped up in learning specific content, learning about, you know, George Washington did what, that kind of thing. The reality is that his, is that history students are learning a set of skills in addition to content knowledge. And the skills in many ways are even more important these days because the content knowledge can all be, that can all be outsourced. You know, we've got Wikipedia to memorize all the facts of, of things. You know, we can debate about interpretation of facts in Wikipedia and all of that. But, you know, we've got repositories that, that store all the data and the facts and all of that. And so what history students really learn is how to analyze and, um, you know, compare various facts and build his uh, historical arguments and all of that. And so this document helps students, hopefully, to realize exactly what skills they have learned. And so, you know, a student can use those skills to put on a resume or a job application or a CV. So that even if you're not applying for a, a job that is obviously history related, you can still list the skills that you learn as a historian that people are looking for in all types of careers, in all types of industries. I mean, everybody wants, no matter what field it is, the bosses want to hire people who can think. They want you to be able to think for yourself, be able to think critically, analyze data, make sense of data, draw conclusions from the data. And that's what historians do. We may not be, you know, in classes, we may, might, may not be doing it off of spreadsheets full of numbers, but we are still doing just that stuff. And so this document is intended to help students get a sense of what exactly they have learned as his, as history students, because we don't always know what we learned. We might have learned a whole lot about, you know, ancient Rome, but the reality is that we also learned a whole bunch of skills that would be that would be valued in a variety of fields. So uh, you can check out this. The document is free through the uh, AHA, and I'll post a link to it in the episode notes for this episode. All right. Well, uh, I think that's it. So uh, thank you for joining me today, Alan. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments for this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For Alan York, I am Rob Denning. Adios.